But I'm holding a Bible, the whole Bible. This right here is the New Testament. Begins with the birth of Jesus. Goes through his being crucified, being raised up through Revelation, telling about his coming return. Can you see that? Okay, even way in the back. It looks in this little Bible here, maybe three sixteenths of an inch. Guess what this is? This is the rest of the Bible called the Old Testament. It's about two thirds of the entire Bible. And yet the church of Jesus Christ today knows very little about two-thirds of the Bible. Everything that we've been singing about doesn't just come into being and sort of play itself out in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and forward into Revelation. It began all the way back into the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, as early as chapter 3. Right after the fall of Adam and Eve, sin enters the world. And there's God speaking to the serpent, to Satan. Placing a curse upon him. And then right there in what theologians call the proto-evangelium. You know what a prototype is of anything, right? It's kind of the, 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 the first, the very first thing. If we're talking about automotives... I always, as a teenager, I loved looking at the prototype vehicles that that even the major manufacturers were coming out with because they were all looking into the future at what their futuristic cars might look like. And these were real honest-to-goodness vehicles called prototypes. The proto-evangelium, Genesis chapter 3, is the very first, the beginning, looking forward of the evangelium, of the pronouncement of the good news of the coming Redeemer of mankind. We don't wait till we get up into Matthew. God had it all figured out and already planned out from before even Adam and Eve blew it. You didn't have one program for the Old Testament and then, oh yeah, let's change things up in the New Testament. It was always ever intended to be the same. Always pointing to Jesus. Jesus himself said after he rose from the dead and the disciples were clueless as to who he was because their eyes were blinded from seeing him. The Bible says, and then beginning with the scriptures. The New Testament wasn't written yet. Jesus took the Old Testament, it says, and began explaining to them all the things about him from the Old Testament. We do ourselves a great disservice by continuing in ignorance of it. That was Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 12, jump ahead a little bit, we're introduced to a man who would be called the patriarch of not only the Jewish nation, but basically the world. His name is Abram. It eventually gets changed to Abraham by God's doing. I will use them interchangeably just out of habit. God says to Abraham, see, in chapter 12, Abraham, I am making of you a great nation. And in you, all the nations, not just the Jewish nation, but all of the nations of the world will be blessed. He was already referring to the fact that through Abraham on down the line, through David, etc., etc., there was a coming Redeemer who would be God in human form. 
again already in the book of Genesis. Chapter 14, two chapters later, is where I start today to give the background to our classic resurrection text in Genesis 15. In chapter 14, there's Abram. Now, Abram, understand, he was just, he was a Bedouin. He was a man who, you know, packed up his, his, he carried his home with him in the form of tents and all his flocks and everything else. And he was a rich man because even then God was blessing him. And in that day, the, the material rich meant basically sheep and cattle and servants and all of that that went with it. So point I'm making there is underscoring that Abram was no king. He was no warrior. He was not a military man. And the reason I mention that is that in chapter 14, we read about an eight-king friendship, if you will, that goes bad. And so now you have two treaty alliances between four kings here and four kings here. And the four kings go to war against the king of Sodom, which happened to be where Abram's nephew Lot was living. And Abram gets news now that these four kings vanquished Sodom as well as various other kingdoms in the area, and his nephew was now in captivity. And Abram decides he has to do something about it, this non-military man. He takes 318 of his men. The text adds the little detail that they were trained, but trained in what? Maybe his own security force, but these were not warriors. And yet with these 318 men... Abraham devised a plan where at nighttime they are going to mount an assault at night against the four king treaty alliance with all their trained armies and their warriors. And they go and they are successful. And they defeat them and Lot comes back to old uncle Abram. But something now really peculiar happens as Abram is on his way back from what is called the slaughter of the kings. It is, in my estimation next to incarnation, the most enigmatic passage in all the scriptures. Because out of nowhere, we are introduced to a a man, I'll put that in quotes, a man named Melchizedek. I wasn't sneezing. That's his name. And this Melchizedek, we are told, was a priest of the Most High God and that he was the king of Salem. Now, there's a problem right there if you understand Old Testament history. Because a king was never, ever, ever, ever allowed to hold the office of high priest as well. And in fact, there were severe repercussions by God should that ever happen, which it did. So right off the bat, we go, we're scratching our head, wait a minute, he's, he's king, uh, hmm, okay. Well, we go on to read, and this is only in a, in a couple of verses, that Melchizedek, Blessed Abram. Okay, why is that a big deal? Well, because we're told later on in chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews, thousands of years later, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. I know you've never heard that before from me. What we find out is that his name, Melchizedek, means the king of righteousness, and He was the what? The text said the king of Salem, which is simply a transliteration of the Hebrew for shalom. 
He was the king of peace. But there is no kingdom of shalom in here. So now we have a man who is both high priest and he's also a king. And not only is it not a problem, but he has been established by God in a manner of speaking. And the writer of Hebrews says that without a doubt, the lesser, meaning Abraham, well, wait a minute, Abram was, was the mega patriarch. There was no human being, arguably, greater than Abraham in that day and that day forward. And yet, the lesser is blessed by the greater, this Melchizedek. So you've got to start asking some questions. Who is this guy? Well, again, thanks to the writer of Hebrews chapter 7. He says, well, he is, first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is king of peace. There are only two people in all of Scripture that, first of all, fit that bill. His name is Jesus. But uh, the writer of Hebrews continues on with more perplexing information. You say, well, that's pretty flimsy and loose concerning Melchizedek if you're trying to tell me that he was actually a pre-incarnate visage or appearance of Jesus, which is exactly what I am going to tell you he is. Because the next thing the writer of Hebrews tells us is that his name was not only king of righteousness and the king of Salem, but he was without father and without mother. Wait, what? What do you mean? Well, some people say, well, it means both his parents were dead. Okay, I'll grant you that one, not really, but for the sake of argument. It also says he's without father, without mother, without genealogy. Now, that doesn't impact us here living in 2016, an entirely different culture. But for a Jew to lose their written, their documented genealogy is tantamount to going out of existence. You did not lose your genealogy. So Melchizedek didn't lose his genealogy. He doesn't have one. And no mother and no father. And then the writer of Hebrews adds, and he is without beginning of days or end of life. Come on! Who can it be but Jesus? Thousands of years before a crying baby in a manger. Well, I, I, I don't get that. I, mean, I always thought Jesus came into being in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. No, that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. They do. But you see, it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Triune God. Always, everlasting, in existence, without beginning, without end, without mother, without father, without genealogy. So boy, the Lord is doing some work in the life of Abram to build up to Genesis 15 where we read that the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. I don't know what you think about when you think about visions, okay? But for quite a long time, whenever I would read about somebody being in a vision in the Bible, I would picture somebody basically, you know, kind of kind of in this catatonic trance, this state of just, uh, okay, uh, you're kind of zoomy, right? And you have sort of cognition, maybe, maybe not, whatever. And then this, you see this kind of thing that's not real, but it's real, but it isn't. And, you know, 
But the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 1, says that God spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, meaning he spoke to people through visions. He spoke to people through miracles. He spoke to them through, through dreams, through angelic messengers, and through pre-incarnate visitations of Christ. That's not the only place where Jesus appears in the Old Testament. So we read that the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. And what the Lord says to Abram is, Abram, I will be your shield and your reward will be great. And then Abram replies, well, what will my reward be? And if you stop there, you go, really, dude? I mean, you know, what, you already have a prosperity God? You know, what can you do for me today? But Abram doesn't stop there. Abram says, what will you do seeing that I have no heir? He was childless. There was nobody to carry on the family name. There was nobody to do this, that, and the other thing. And he says, Eliezer, some shirt-tail relative of Damascus, he's going to be my heir. So this wasn't a, what are you going to give me today, Lord? It was just like, uh, you know, you say you're going to give me something great. Okay. Apart from a son, what could that possibly be? And the Lord says, Eliezer's not going to be your heir, for I am going to give you a son who will be your heir. And then, remember, this is a vision still. This is all in a vision. Abraham is communicative. He's conscious. He's cognizant. And now he's going to be upright and mobile because God says, Abraham, take a walk with me. And they come on and he take him outside. And he says, Abram, look up into the night sky. And he says, I am going to make you the father of many nations. And all your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. So, Abram, do me a favor. I want you to just start counting the stars. <laughs> Abram, hmm. Okay, I'm going to start up in the corner so I don't lose my place. One, two, no. Abram is engulfed. He's overwhelmed. I don't even have a son. And yet you're telling me this. And the very next verse, you need to write on a virtual sticky note and put it on your, ow, put it on your forehead, but gently. And we're going to take it off later so you won't look goofy walking out with your virtual sticky note. Anyway, the very next verse says, and God says, look up, so shall your descendants be. And it says, and Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's on the sticky note. It's on your forehead. Stick it there for now. We're going to come back to it. Very next verse. The Lord says, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you up from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you a land to possess it. And what does Abram say? Lord, how will I know? that I'm to possess it. If I'm God, and I'm not, I'm going, really? Abram, just think back a few chapters. Remember the conversation we had in chapter 12? Think back a chapter. Do you remember the meeting that you had with this supernatural visage? 
being blessed by the high priest, the king of God, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. And now, go back one sentence. I just told you, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you a land to possess it. What do you mean, how will you know it will come to pass? Well, that's me. That's not what God does. That's not what he says. Instead, he says, Abram, he says, all right, we're going to do this the meticulous way. Because Abram, believe it or not, you're not going to understand this, but you're not the only one this is being recorded for. He says, Abram, go get me a heifer, a ram, and a goat, and a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And I want you to cut the three big animals in half. Don't cut the turtle dove or the pigeon. All right. I had to make some modifications, okay? There were some people in the church who I think would have been willing, Don Cole, to provide me probably what I needed. Cut in half and everything. And I was kind of just visualizing that and how awesome that would be, sort of. Yeah, but maybe not. So you got to use your imagination, okay? Yeah. All right, you know, I, <laughs> I asked for help from the people of the church. You know, there aren't a whole lot of large stuffed animals hanging around out there, so I could not be choosy. So, okay. So, Abram... I don't want him to upstage this. This is half of a heifer, okay? Picture it. And the text says that Labram cuts them in half and he sets them side by side, which indeed he does, and he does that for a reason. The other half of the heifer looks amazingly like a tiger. It bounces. And then he takes the goat or the ram, either one, and he cuts them in half and he takes their two pieces and he lays them down. And he takes finally the goat and he cuts it in pieces and he lays them down side by side. And this is exactly what he is doing. And then he takes the turtle dove and the pigeon and those he leaves intact because the Lord said, leave them intact. And remember the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. This is how this all started, which means we are still in the vision. What happens next? Well, Abram does what he is told, and now he waits. And he waits until the birds of prey start circling overhead, and they see lunch or dinner or whatever. And Abram runs over, and he shoes them away, and they go away. And then we read in the text, chapter 15, that the sun started going down. And as the sun is going down, the Lord says to Abram, Abram, remember his question, Lord, how will I know that I am to possess the land? He's in the process of answering that. He says to Abram, 
your descendants are going to, in fact, be many, and they are going to inherit the lands that I give them. But it's not going to be without problem and issue. They, in fact, are going to become uh, in, uh, um, captives, and they are going to be sent into to, uh, Egypt, which we read about in the book of Exodus, for 400 years in slavery and bondage to Pharaoh. And, but God says, but don't worry. He says, I've got a plan in all of this, and I will punish the nations and Pharaoh for punishing my people, but then they will be released again and life will be grand and all of that so long as they listen and obey and all of that, which we know they don't. And by this time, the sun is already set. And the text tells us, and now it's dark. It's pitch black. And the Lord causes a divine I'm going to say sleep, for lack of a better term, a divine sleep to come upon Abram. But wait a minute. I thought he, this was a whole thing. is a vision. It is. Well, now, how can you be in a vision and be put to sleep and still hear and see what's being transacted and everything else? In many and varied ways, God spoke to the fathers and the prophets. Okay? So now Abram is laying there in some kind of a nocturnal stupor, but again, he is cognizant and he is conscious to where he understands and can see what's going on. But he is incapacitated. And then what we read is that in this darkness, there appears a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. I don't know, but possibly the smoking fire pot is alluding to the pillar of, of smoke that would appear by day, the pillar of cloud that would appear by day, that would be the manifest presence of God leading his people, and the flaming torch, perhaps the pillar of fire by night, that would be God leading his people. But whatever it is, here's this physical manifestation that's clearly visible. And now the two pieces which represent God start moving through the cut-up animals, right through the aisle. And as that is happening, God is reciting to Abram exactly, again, what he had already promised, that you will be the father of many nations and you will possess the land. And God goes through those pieces and what he is doing is he is enacting a, an official, formal, legal covenant or promise, or in our terms, a contract. Now, this was not anything unusual for the culture and even for many pagan cultures. Because the way a contract was enacted is that, let's say you had a house that I inquired about and I wanted to rent. And you said, okay. There's some papers I'm going to have you sign. That's what we would do. Instead, they would go through this routine. And now the two people making the promise, the contract, the covenant, would walk between these pieces and they'd discuss the terms of the covenant, of the promise. Okay, so how much did you say that you were going to give me the house for? Uh, $400 a month. Really? Because I thought you said 300 No, it was 400 Okay, just see if you were listening. 
And then he says, okay, and remember there's a first month's last and, you know, first and, first and last month's rent i got to have up front. And if there's damage at the end of the time, your security deposit will be forfeited and this and that. So here's what I'm going to do. Here's what you're going to do. And they would discuss the covenant going through these pieces. And what this all symbolizes with the blood and the guts and everything else is that before God, in this case, in the Jews' case, that they are saying, may it happen to me if I violate the terms of this covenant. So the two of them would say, here's what we're agreeing on, and if either one of us defaults in any way, shape, or form on what we agreed to, we are saying, may I be cut in half, basically capital punishment, and destroy me. That was the typical form of making such covenants, promises, and contracts. And the story ends at the end of Genesis 15, right like that. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> You're going, what? All right. So let me explain. No time. Let me sum up. <laughs> the Messiah has already been foretold in Genesis 3. All the promises, the appearances of Jesus, the reiterations of the promise through the prophecies and the prophets and the Katuvim and the Nevi'im and the writings and all of that that comprised the Old Testament, everything was pointing, again, to this coming Redeemer and Messiah who he would come and he would be the salvation of all who believe. It had nothing to do with, with any kind of performance of rituals, of obedience to the laws of Judaism or anything else. It was to be by faith. So what is going on in Genesis 15? If God said to Abraham again, Abram, you want to know how you know that the promise is going to come to pass? Take another walk with me through the pieces. That covenant and promise that he would in fact inherit the land was now contingent upon God's ability and integrity. No problem with that. But also now on Abram's ability and integrity to live up to the terms of the contract. So, if anybody but God alone is going through those pieces, that contract is doomed to fail. Any contract, any covenant is only as strong as the weakest link in the covenant. So God takes Abraham right out of it. So now, remember the question, how will I know that I will possess it? Because I just made the official promise and proclamation and declaration, and it is dependent on nobody but me. You can take it to the bank. It cannot fail. And now we go thousands of years forward because this is an exact living illustration of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from nothing. He said, boy, that's a, okay, it's, it's fun to hear that, it's cool, but it's a bit of a stretch. Well, it would be if I was just pulling that out of the air. Know that sticky note I told you about? Okay. Your skin should be oily, it shouldn't go, it'll just kind of come off real easily. Remember what it was? Abram believed God, and it was credited to him. As righteousness. Now we go centuries back up to the Apostle Paul writing to the New Testament church in the book of Romans. 
What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh is found? If Abraham was justified by works, that means by anything he could do or contributing to anything or, you know, the obedience to the law or jumping through the religious hoops and observing this and observing that. Well, then he's got something to boast about, eh, but not before God, because what does the scripture say? The scripture says, and this is what happened in Genesis 14, uh, excuse me, 15. And Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. We drop down now a few verses to verse 20 in Romans chapter 4. No distrust made Abram waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that he was able to do what God had promised. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only. Not for Abram's sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also. Oh, you didn't pull that out of the air. No, I didn't. But for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. God blows me away. The great I am.